uh, sermon outline says faithful in Christ. We're up to 3 John. This is our 20th week in the epistles of John. Only one more to go after today. Please open your Bibles to 3 John. If you're not sure where it is, go all the way to the back of your Bible and then start slowly moving left. After you get past Revelation, you will be coming upon it, Revelation and Jude. And it's a very short letter, easy one to miss, easy one to skip. But its presence there is not an accident. I'm going to read the first eight verses. John is a one-chapter book. So 3 John, verses 1 through 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your truth. Every word of Scripture is given from your mouth, is breathed out by your Spirit, and you tell us it is profitable for our reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that we would be built up to maturity, equipped, for every good work. And so we pray as we hear this word preached this morning that we would receive it for what it is, not as the words and opinions of man, but as the very word of God. By your spirit, enable us not only to understand it, but to believe it, embrace it, and to live it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I turned 50 this year. And with that sad news, I had to get a physical. I don't like physicals. I mean, it's one thing to take my car in for a 60,000-mile checkup, as I did yesterday. It's another thing entirely to take my body to some guy in a white coat in hopes that he's going to keep me humming along for another year or so. I mean, we're talking about a trip way outside my comfort zone. And this past summer, I had to endure yet another physical. So I went there, kind of stoic, you know. Everything's going well, low blood pressure, et cetera, and they're running these tests and looking at all these things, and I see the doctor starting to murmur under his breath. That's not a good sign. And I wind up with a referral for something called a stress echocardiogram. 
which is supposed to be a painless exercise to check out your heart and make sure it's working fine. But I'm pretty sure I saw Jack Bauer do it on 24 to some other poor guy. So I go to this referral, go to a room with a treadmill and an ultrasound machine, thinking so far so good. And then they tell me to take off my shirt. And they shave half my chest with an old, dry, dirty, rusty razor. <laughs> but I can still handle it. And then I'm told to lie down. And they attach about a dozen electrodes to my body. Remember, I watch 24. I've seen these things in action. And I don't care what they say. They can make the electrical current run both ways. <laughs> you know, and then I have to get on a treadmill. And I look over and I can see the nurse grinning as the speed and the angle of this thing get cranked up. I'm not complaining, maybe a little. But I don't get real excited having to run in front of complete strangers without a shirt. And for reasons of torture, I'm sure, the thermostat is set about 40 degrees. Fortunately, I got through it. I survived the deep freeze, and I escaped with a clean bill of health on my heart. Another referral out of the way. Maybe next week I'll tell you about my colonoscopy. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but having my physical health checked out, Reminds me that we need to have our spiritual health get checked out as well. That's what the Apostle John is doing today. He's writing to his good friend Gaius here in 3 John. He lists a number of things that add up to a healthy heart for God. And you can look at these in the text. He tells him, I know you're walking in the truth. You're faithful in the truth. You can see that in verses 3 and 4. He tells him you're faithful in serving others. He hears good reports about that in verses 5 and 6. And he uh, tells him about showing love to other people. And you can see that in verses uh, actually 5 all the way through verse 8. And showing love to friends and family and strangers. And I thought about that, and I said, how would I do on that spiritual health checkup? How would I pass that exam? Would I need a referral? Think about that. Is God, ask God to reveal if any of these areas you really need a spiritual checkup in. The good news is there won't be any electrodes required. God doesn't need them. He sees straight into your heart. That's a little bit of what John is writing about here. So let's attend to God's word here in 3 John. And we'll start by seeing the Christian community should be concerned about truth and love. A little background uh, to this book. Uh, turn there if you're not there already. We'll make our way through these three little letters of the Apostle John. We've just finished a brief look at 2 uh, John, the second letter, and we go into the third letter, a letter short enough to be written on one single sheet of papyrus in John's day. And it's addressed from the elder, again, just like second John was. This time, instead of being addressed to the elect lady, which we think was a local congregation, it's addressed to one particular man in a local congregation. It's addressed to Gaius. We don't know who Gaius is. 
There's speculation in the days of the early church as to exactly who Gaius was, but nobody knows for sure. It's a very common name in the Greco-Roman world. It would be sort of like uh, writing a letter to our church and addressing it to Dave. You know, you got about a third of the guys, you know, there. So nobody's quite sure which one are you talking about. But we do know this about Gaius. He's a leader. He's a respected part of the congregation. He's a person with a responsibility, and we'll deal with that in a few moments. This is a companion letter to 2 John. They go together. They have a similar pastoral concern. 2 John is uh, concerned to encourage Christians not to show hospitality to false teachers, whereas 3 John is concerned to encourage Christians to show hospitality to the true teachers, to the faithful uh, Christian missionaries, pastors, and evangelists. And so if the Apostle John, 2 John, is warning these Christians against supporting and showing hospitality and showing respect to, towards the false teachers, he doesn't want them to overreact. And it appears that's what's happened with some. Some people in the church have said, well, if we can't show hospitality to the false teachers, we'll be safe. We won't show hospitality to anybody. And so now he's addressing uh, that. And he wants them to show hospitality and support and encouragement for the true and faithful uh, missionaries and pastors, evangelists, and teachers. And that gives us the backdrop of this little book. So the positive instruction of 3 John... Christians show hospitality to these missionaries who are visiting is balancing the negative instruction of 2 John, which was don't show uh, hospitality or give support to those who are denying the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the Bible, the apostles' teaching about Christ. So let's look at the text and see what John says. We will see three great truths here to which I draw your attention. They pertain to spiritual health, to the balance of truth and love in the Christian life, and to gospel hospitality. And I want to explore those with you. I've chosen three phrases from the text to use as an outline. And the first one comes from the end of John's describing his prayer in verse 2. And he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Okay, verses 1 and 2, well with your soul. That's the first blank in your outline. I think John here is speaking beautiful words to this faithful disciple. And we learn something about Christian love and spiritual health. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Notice again, John identifies himself only as the elder. Why does he do that? I don't really know. I mean, he could be drawing attention to his age. You know, John's probably getting up there in years by the time he wrote this letter. We date this approximately in the mid-90s of the first century. Um, he could be uh, mentioning it by way of seniority, a man who would be the last of the apostles, surely deserved respect for that kind of seniority. Was he doing it because of his own respect for the office of elder? He could have called himself an apostle. 
yet he refers to himself as an elder. Or is this a way to protect the safety of this church in case this letter falls into the wrong hands? He doesn't identify himself lest the recipients face persecution because of their association with him. Again, I don't know. It could be any or all of those reasons. But we know the elder John writes this letter and he writes it to Gaius. And whoever Gaius is... He is clearly a person who's in leadership and has significant responsibility in this church. And how do we know that? Well, just look at what John says about him. First of all, the visiting missionaries that come to this church are staying with Gaius. He's the one who has hosted uh, those missionaries who come into town. He clearly has a role of leadership in the church and particularly in the showing of hospitality to those who were sent out in the name of Christ to spread the gospel. They stay with him when they come to town. Secondly, notice that John will speak to Gaius about the problem of a fellow who's spreading dissension in the church. And we'll look at that more carefully next week. It's really in the second part of the letter. But this man is raising questions about John's authority. He's encouraging the congregation not to receive these missionaries, not to support them, not to bless them, and not to send them on their way. And John writes to Gaius about this. Now, If Gaius was not a church leader, then all this is just gossip. And we wouldn't expect the Apostle John to gossip. So the fact that he's addressing a specific problem helps us to understand that he's in some leadership capacity. And he's writing to him because he is in a position of authority. Perhaps he's a leading elder in this congregation. Perhaps he's the pastor of this congregation. Whoever he is, he's a person of authority who can be expected to deal in a pastoral and sensitive but biblical and forceful way with this man who is rejecting the authority of the Apostle John and causing dissension in the church and undercutting the support of these missionaries. And thirdly, notice what John calls him. Beloved Gaius. And you could say, well, you know, that's just what John thinks about Gaius. John loves this man. And that's true. He tells you in the very next phrase, whom I love in truth. But I think he's, think, I think he's saying something more when he calls him that. He's not simply saying, Gaius, you're loved by me. It seems that he's saying, Gaius, you're beloved to all the brothers and the sisters. The people in this church love you. He's writing it almost as if it's a title, Beloved Gaius. And he makes it clear later on that certainly the missionaries who have received Gaius's hospitality love him. They come back to John, and obviously they've brought a good report back to him. You know, let me tell you about this fellow Gaius that we met there. He unburdened our hearts just to be with him. He welcomed us into his home. He helped us. He encouraged us. He supported us. He sent us on our way with a blessing. John, this man, this Christian is the real thing. He encouraged us. He's beloved to us. See, so for all these reasons, we can tell that Gaius is a person of responsibility and leadership in this local church. And then John tells him that he loves him in the truth. That's an odd phrase. I thought about that. I'm not sure that I've ever received a letter that says, I love you in the truth. And I don't think he's just saying, Gaius, you know, I sincerely love you. 
Again, I think that's true. I think John does love him sincerely. But he says, I love you in truth. What's he saying? What does that mean? I think he's saying, Gaius, we love the same God. We love the same Savior. We uh, serve the same mission. We love the same scriptures. We love the same truth. We have that bond together in the gospel. And I tell you, friend, I love you because of it. He's expressing his love to Gaius, but he's noting there's a real bond here that they are bound in the truth. They're bound in the gospel. They're bound in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that binds them together however they may be different otherwise. Have you ever met people like that? Christians and you just meet them and after a few moments there's uh, real evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in them. And these people radiate love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. They have such qualities that only God could have put them there and they encourage you in extraordinary ways. This past week, I was at a pastor's conference. And uh, most of us arrived there uh, from all over the country and other parts of the world, not knowing one another. But let me tell you, by the time we left, (coughs) excuse me, by the time we left, there were tremendous bonds of uh, friendship. They had been established. I had the opportunity one day you go down, they just serve meals and they're big round tables, about eight, ten people. So I would always get in there first and sit down and see who showed up, not knowing anyone else. And I had the opportunity after supper one night to talk with this wonderful Reformed Baptist pastor from Ireland. And we had a great time. He was telling me how God was working in Ireland and uh, how the gospel is being preached. His name is Keith Giles, and he's preaching the, go- the gospel in Belfast, Ireland. And uh, I've already gotten an email from him and just saying, you know, we had a great time and sort of checking in. And there were men saying of pastors they'd only known for 48 hours. You know, I love that guy. Have you ever had that experience where you met someone and there was just this bond and you were just drawn to them somehow? And I think that's what John's saying here. There's a word about the depth of Christian love for other Christians. But here's the part I want you to concentrate on. Look at verse 2. In this greeting, there was a typical Greek greeting that said, Be well, may the gods give you health and prosper you. And John spins that a little bit. He changes it. He gives it an entirely different emphasis. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. That was another interesting phrase. I don't read that phrase often today. I don't hear people say that often today. I don't think John is just wishing uh, Gaius physical well-being in addition to his spiritual well-being. I think he's saying, Gaius, I know I don't have to pray for your spiritual well-being. That's evident to everyone. It's been reported to me. I just pray that you'll be physically well and fruitful in your labors just as you are spiritually healthy. 
Now, I thought about that. I thought it was a very kind thing to say. But then I also found it a little scary. I mean, I had thought about, I had to tremble a little bit at the thought that one of you might give me that blessing. For you to say of me, I hope your physical health is just as good as your spiritual health, my first reaction is I'm in ICU. <laughs> I'm heading to the hospital, and, you know, there are going to be more referrals and more things stuck to me. And, you know, to ask that the Lord would make me as physically healthy as I am spiritually healthy. And there's days that's frightening. But I thought about that, and I said, but what a tremendous word of encouragement about this man, Gaius, that John can say your spiritual health is evident to everyone. I just pray you'll be just as well in terms of your physical health as you are spiritually. I hope your labors are prospered the way that you're spiritually healthy. And we ought to want to be that spiritually healthy. <laughs> That if someone came to us and their prayer was that our physical health would be just like our spiritual health, that wouldn't scare us. That would be good news. I think we ought to aim to emulate that kind of spiritual health so that kind of encouragement could be given. But I need to pause here a moment and sort of go off on a tangent just for a moment. Because this passage, this verse is a key verse for those who preach a prosperity gospel. I need to say this verse has been sadly misused and misapplied by many Christian teachers in our own day and time. The prosperity gospel is back with a vengeance. It was a real big for a while uh, in the 80s and, uh, and it sort of died out as a series of scandals struck, but now it's back and it's back with a vengeance. You can't turn on the television today without somebody preaching health and wealth. And 3 John, verse 2, is one of the key verses appealed to by these prosperity preachers. And the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, is the gospel that says God not only wants your soul salvation, but he wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And I'll tell you up front, we disagree with that. I don't think that's the gospel at all. Because what's the flip side of that? If you're not healthy and wealthy, it's because you don't realize that promise or you don't have enough faith. And if you'd only have enough faith, you'd be healthy and wealthy as well as saved in eternity. I don't think that speaks to the second or third world at all. It's a unique American heresy. And prosperity preachers going around telling Christians if they will contribute to their ministries, if they'll become involved in some particular way in making a vow of faith, then they will receive health and wealth if they simply ask for it in faith and make a commitment to their ministry. And we see it everywhere we turn, in churches and on television. And verse 2 is one of the key verses they use to base it on. Now listen to it again. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. 
Well, I can tell you, none of these preachers are using the English Standard Version. In fact, I would tell you that almost all of them are using the New American Standard Version, because while it's a very good version, I think it badly translates this verse. It says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And I think the King James is even worse. And part of it is because they're based on uh, newer, less reliable texts, even though they're older translations. And I think this is not what John is talking about in this passage. John is not saying that every Christian should be fabulously wealthy or deliriously prosperous or unendingly healthy. And it's funny because I've noticed that all of these prosperity preachers still die. <laughs> I mean, these things could. They have the potential to be a blessing if we're the Lord to give them to us. But these things are not things that are promised to every believer. Jesus' own life bears witness of that. And certainly I should be able to tell you, I pray that all may go well with you without thinking that you should be rich. Although truth be told, in the eyes of most of the world, everyone here this morning already is. At any rate, John's point in this passage is to raise the issue of the spiritual health of Gaius, which he describes in the following verses. And we should long to have that kind of spiritual health in our own lives and to be clearly seen in our own lives. So John's going to go on and explain what he means. And it has nothing to do with your uh, health and wealth. That's not what John is writing about. He has a spiritual motivation here. Remember, I've chosen three phrases from the text to use as the outline. The second one comes from the end of verses 3 and the end of verse 4. He mentions walking in the truth, verses 3 and 4, walking in the truth. Here's his report, uh, John's celebration of this report about Gaius, his reaction to hearing about a disciple's faith and love. John reminds us the joy we ought to have when we see Christians walking in love and in truth. He says, verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And John may have been Gaius' spiritual father. He may have been the one who led him to faith in Christ. He may be grouping Gaius amongst his uh, spiritual children in the sense of those whom he's led to the Lord. But whatever the case is, he's obviously delighting in this man's life and, and in his faithfulness. And he twice emphasizes that he's delighting in the fact that Gaius is walking in the truth. Well, what does John mean by that? Well, simply that Gaius is sound in doctrine, that he loves Christ and he loves the gospel. And if you look ahead at the end of verse 6, he mentions your love before the church. They talk about your love before the church. So what is, if he's committed to truth, what does it mean to be walking in truth? And I think it means he's not only committed to sound doctrine, but he's living out that doctrine in clear, tangible Christian love. In other words, John's saying, I see in you, Gaius, both truth and love. I see right doctrine, right belief, a commitment to Christian love, and I see them joined together. 
And it's a great description of the balance of the Christian life. You know, a healthy disciple who loves the truth of God's word and is committed to living that out in love. In this case, in the support of visiting missionaries in the local congregation. In the church, often we set those things, truth and love, against each other. You know, you've heard people say he loves truth more than he loves people. But in Gaius, we see a man who loves truth and he loves people. He loves sound doctrine and he's committed to living out that truth in love and in his life. And John rejoices because of it. You know, there was a group of people who loved the truth. They were called Pharisees, and Jesus had a number of words for them. But as I looked at them, you never see Jesus saying to the Pharisees, your problem is that you care too much about the truth. Never says that. They did have a problem with the practical expression of love in their life. But, you know, Jesus never says to them, oh, forget the truth, be loving. It's always truth and love go together, hand in hand. And if you're loving but you lack truth, Jesus has something to say about that. And if you have truth but you lack love, Jesus has something to say about that. You need both of these. And we see that these are together in the life of this disciple, Gaius. So we have to ask ourselves, what does that look like in my life? Am I on the love side, the truth side? Is there any balance at all? You know, a lot of us are, are like a, a metronome. You know, we're kind of going back and forth. Truth, love, truth, love. It's not what he's talking about. I know a ruling elder who cares a great deal about doctrine... He's always reading sound Christian books. He loves to study the confession of faith, loves to study the Bible, loves to memorize scripture, but he's also faithful to do personal evangelism. And that combination excites me. A man who loves the Bible this much and loves truth this much is also faithful to talk about Jesus with other people. And there are leaders in this church that have those kinds of combinations of truth and love. But we ought to be praying that we would all, in some measure, have that balance in our lives, having a concern for truth and expressing it in love. So the question is, are we praying for each other? Are we praying for ourselves in this area? You know, after we finish John, we're going to do a couple months on prayer. One of the things we ought to be praying about for each other is that we would hold both truth and love together, that we wouldn't have one at the expense of the other. And then we should rejoice when we see that in somebody's life, and that's what John is doing. But he doesn't stop there. I've chosen a third phrase from the text for our outline, and this comes from the end of verse 8, workers for the truth. John goes on, verses 5, and we see his expression of appreciation for Gaius' hospitality. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
Here's the circumstance. In the early church, there was itinerant evangelists and missionaries. They left their full-time jobs. They devoted themselves to the spread of the gospel. And they traveled from church to church and place to place to preach in places where the gospel hadn't been heard. And Gaius is welcoming into his home these traveling missionaries who love the truth. And he's encouraging them, and he's supporting them. He's giving them food and finances so they can go about their labors, even when he doesn't have a personal relationship with them. Some of these people I'm sure he knows. Some of them are brothers that uh, he knows. But others, John says, are strangers. When they first come to him, he doesn't even know them. But they're certified by the church. They're faithful in their doctrine. Uh, but he doesn't know them, but he takes them in, and he shows them hospitality. And John is saying, well done. That's how we ought to be behaving towards missionaries. Keep it up. Way to go. At the end of verse 6, he says, don't let anybody turn you back. Keep on doing this. Keep on showing this kind of care and provision encouragement to missionaries. Keep on supporting them. Now, we're going to learn next week, God willing, uh, why John has to say this. Because there's somebody in the church that's trying to undercut him. And he says, Gaius, you keep on doing this. You keep on showing this support. In fact, in verses 7 and 8, he gives us three reasons why Gaius ought to support them. First, he says they're going for the sake of the name. Saying, Gaius, let me tell you something about these faithful teachers. They've left home and lands and inheritance and friends and family for one reason and one reason only, to spread the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They have left for the name, the name which is above every other name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've left for that reason, and that alone compels our support of them. We support them because they've left everything for the name. And isn't that the Apostle Paul's direction for the whole church? The beginning of Romans, Romans 1, verses 5 and 6, he says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the whole church has that calling. But then he goes on and uh, tells us not only is that a good reason, but here's another good reason. They accept nothing from the Gentiles. You know, they're not going out there saying, Gentiles, I've got good news. Pay me and I'll tell you. You know, anytime you hear someone on television saying, pay me first and then I'll tell you good news, you know you're not dealing with the true preacher of the word. They're not going to the Gentiles to make money. They're going to give something to them, not get something from them. And John said it's incumbent upon those of us who are already believers to support missions to those who aren't believers. That's another good reason to support missionaries. We're not going to ask those on the mission field to get their support from those they're trying to bless who don't know Christ. Maybe someday they'll come to know Christ and then they too uh, can help support missionaries to go to other unbelievers. But right now, we're the believers. And I think, excuse me. <laughs> and I think it's pretty clear from the scriptures, you're either going or sending. It's one or the other. And if you're not going, you're sending. And uh, if we're sending, that's what we should do. 
These people have no other means of support. And then John says, and I think this is a beautiful phrase, says we support these missionaries because when we do, we become fellow workers in the truth. The end of verse 8 says that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It says our gifts cause us to be mingled in their ministry. They're going out to tell the truth. They're leaving home and family. And when we support them, it's as if we're going with them. Now, we support missionaries in Egypt, France, on the Mexican border, Africa, India. And when we support them, you are going with them to those places. Potomac Hills is represented in Egypt when we send folks there. So there are some good reasons to support them. And, uh, of course, the goal of this support is not just that we would be fellow workers. The goal is the exaltation of Christ and the spread of the gospel. And John's basically just pausing here and saying, Gaius, I so appreciate the example you've set for the church for this kind of support and encouragement of these missionaries. And I think this passage is giving us a great picture of the spiritual health of a church leader picture that we should aspire to, that we should follow his example of spiritual health, of walking in truth and love and supporting those working to spread the gospel. And may God help us to do that. But far too often, that's not the case. I think sometimes it's not the case because we buy into our own version of a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that we think if we're Christians, we should be healthy and wealthy. But I do think way too often that we make the term success and blessing to be synonyms. And nowhere in the Bible is that the case. God could be blessing your socks off and you could be dirt poor. On the other hand, you could have immense wealth and be a spiritual train wreck. But sadly, much of the church, particularly in America, confuses success and blessing. So I think we have to ask the question, what is success? What is success? Thought of a couple instances that the world would say, these people are successful. One, one of our early presidents, John Quincy Adams, senator, congressman, president, key figure in the American Revolution and the War of 1812. But at the age of 70, John Quincy Adams said, My whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I ever undertook. Well, I can tell you, there's a whole lot of people that think becoming a a senator, a congressman, or a president on Tuesday is the epitome of success. And this man done all three and says, I've never had any success. Lee Iacocca still stands as a monolithic leader in the world of business. He had risen from engineer to president of Ford Motor Company. He moved to Chrysler as CEO and resurrected that company out of the ashes, so to speak. At the height of his career, he told an interviewer, quote, Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Lee Iacocca. At the tender age of 28, Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots, 
led his team to three Super Bowl victories. When asked by writer Steve Croft what he thought about his success, Tom Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. What's the answer, the writer pressed? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Adams, Iacocca, and Brady are icons of the American dream. They've all ascended to the highest rung of accomplishment in their fields, and yet their success did not inoculate them from this gnawing hunger for meaning. So what is success that fulfills that hunger? There must be a better answer. In his book, Joe Paterno, the uh, ancient coach of Penn State, the, uh, and he's been coaching Penn State longer than most of you have been alive. So I think it's 46 years now. But he wrote in one of his books, success without honor is an unseasoned dish. It will satisfy your hunger, but it won't taste good. And I would change that phrase to it may taste good, but it won't satisfy your hunger. The key thought in there is that success hinges on character rather than accomplishment. It's not hard to understand why. Accomplishment is weighed in the court of public opinion. You're accomplished if other people think you're accomplished. Whether you're building a financial empire or creating magnificent art, ultimately you're accomplished if other people say you are. But character is based on virtues. So eternal principles that originate from the essence of God. Uh, Wisdom, justice, courage, self-control. Known from ancient times as the cardinal virtues. And with the coming of Christ, uh, those have been expanded with mercy, compassion, patience, humility, forgiveness, and love. And that's not only true for an individual, it's also true on a church level. How can we tell God's blessing a church? must be growing. Well, aren't there some cult groups growing too? Is God blessing them? Next Sunday, we're going to hand out the 2009 budget for our church. And don't for a minute think that numbers of people and size of budget are necessarily related to being blessed by God. It's not how God defines success. You know, Jesus' most passionate prayer for his people comes to a close in John 17. He says there, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I think that's the most compact teaching about success that you can find. In God's economy, success is found in having a real relationship with Jesus Christ, so much so that someone else could say about your spiritual health, I pray that all might go well with you, just as it is well with your soul. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I will close.